This is Ben Gillespie interviewing Alfredo Yar at his studio in New York City on July 29th, 2020 for the Smithsonian Institution Archives of American Art Pandemic Project. Could you tell me a little bit about how these past few months have been for you um, during the pandemic and the large shifts we've seen in America? Well, uh, that's like a three hour answer. <laughs> Uh, it has been horrific to watch uh, this country collapse into this unbelievable chaos. Uh, this health crisis has become a triple crisis. It's also a crisis of uh, the financial crisis and then it's also a crisis of democracy. We can see that in the streets of, of this country. So it's a troubled crisis and uh, this is in a flow. It's happening right now, it's alive. So it's very difficult to have a, a distance and, and, and actually speak with, with certainty about this. So, Everything I can say is just a spontaneous uh, reaction to your questions, but obviously uh, in a few months, in a few years from now, I may look at them and think, oh, how stupid was I? But, oh, how, how smart was I? I don't know, because it's happening right now. So we're in the middle of it. But the, 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 the ineptitude of the administration has been Criminal, absolutely criminal. That's, that's the only way to describe it. And uh, I mean, I don't need to remind you that if you look at the numbers, this country represents barely 4% of the world population and we have 25% of the cases. And the same with the death. It's just horrific and it's unfair and it's very, very sad. Now, um, in terms of um, myself, it has been very difficult. I've been away from the studio for uh, 16 weeks. The, the building was closed, the studio was closed. And I've been back for the last uh, two weeks. And, and we are slowly starting to, to restart in a way. We're restarting. Every single exhibition I had has been postponed for next year or even for 1922 or in 2022 and 2023. So I find myself with, with a lot of space in front of me with really nothing in my schedule. This is an unprecedented situation. In the last 30 years, I've had dozens of exhibitions every year of all kinds. And I was traveling all around the world to, uh, to investigate and to prepare exhibitions, to give conferences, to teach, et cetera, et cetera. All this is gone completely. So the first, the next few months look pretty tough so far. Uh, so during this time when I was confined at home, I, um, 
I rediscovered silence and I rediscovered slowness and I rediscovered solitude and that has been good. I, I read an enormous amount of stuff. I, I watch an incredible amount of movies and I listen an extraordinary amount of music. This I had not done for the last forever. I have never done it like this before. So this has been good. This has been like a break in, my, in, in the frenzy of, of my life. I was very stressed. As I said, traveling around the world, I was traveling 200 days per year. I was having an average of 30 exhibitions per year and a dozen lectures per year. So it was a train that never stopped and suddenly it stopped. And this has been completely new as an experience. So besides my frustration uh, and the economic pain for me and for my assistants, uh, it has been, um, as I said, a rediscovery of silence and uh, solitude. And that has been good. And I'm asking myself a lot of questions that I, I ignored. I mean, what am I doing? What, where am I going? What are really, how can we act in the world the way it is? So even though my work has always been reactive to, um, to the context, because I'm an architect, for me, context is everything. Uh, I find myself um, thinking again and again and deeper and deeper. How do I react to this? As I said, health crisis, financial crisis, we have millions of unemployed. I mean, I live in Soho. Half of Soho is, is, is still barricaded and uh, was destroyed. Uh, the city has changed and the world has radically changed. So we're all asking ourselves, where do we go from here? So it's a moment of, of doubt. I've, I've managed to create um, two works, two small videos, two modest videos, um, one approximately five minutes, the other one 13 minutes. And they, they are exercises, exercises that, that uh, respond to this moment. I can send them to you uh, after we finish this conversation. Um, so I wanted to come back to the, the silence and the slowness and the solitude um, that you're describing. And since you're an architect and um, an artist very interested in the politics of photography, I was wondering about how your sense of the idea of witnessing or sharing has shifted with that solitude, with that slowness, now that we're living um, in such a way that we're reliant upon photography even more than we were in the past. Um, and, and our public spaces are radically transformed for us. Well, because my work, <clears throat> is the sound okay? Yes. Because my work responds to the context, all my investigations have always been about witnessing. 
witnessing in the most deep and the most responsible way to try to understand the context before acting. My motto has always been the same. I will not act in the world before understanding the world. And so this witnessing is, is, is part of what, who I am, what I do all the time. I've never done a single project in my life that is the pure product of my imagination. Every single project reacts to a certain reality, either of my immediate environment or the context in which I'm invited to act. The difference now is that this witnessing has happened online, through the internet. And this is completely flawed. I'm very uncomfortable with this kind of witnessing. You really never know exactly what's happening unless you are there, physically there. So that's why I've traveled so much, approximately, as I said, 200 days a year for the last 30 years. I've flown more than 7 million miles because it's important to go there, to see with your own eyes, to be in situ, to talk to people, to talk to the key actors of the context in which you're acting or trying to act. And this kind of witnessing, I cannot do it now. I've been witnessing through my, my computer. I've participated in some of the marches in, in, uh, in New York City. Not too many because I'm, I'm 64, so I'm, I'm, in a, in, I'm in the higher risk category. So I've, I've, I couldn't resist going to a few. I filmed a few, I photographed a few, but I didn't go to as many as I wanted because of my health. I wanted to make sure I'm fine. And it's frustrating, it's frustrating. So it's very difficult to, uh, to react only based on what I see on TV and on, on the internet. Because, as you know, I'm distrustful. I do not trust what I see, uh, these fabrications. Some of them can be trustful, others are not. Others are very manipulative. That's why I read so many uh, different um, media sources from around the world. I spend two, two hours every morning looking at the news from at least 37 uh, sources in different languages because I need to, to understand what's happening. And by, by looking at these different sources from different uh, ideological frameworks, I can understand better. It's not perfect. It's not as if I'm there, but at least it gives me different uh, perspectives. And that is better than just having a single perspective. So, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm still a witness, but a frustrated witness and a limited witness. So being in New York throughout this period and um, you know, really being in New York, not traveling like you're used to, um, has that, have you been reflecting on uh, your past installations in New York and just everything that's happening on the ground in terms of Black Lives Matter and the you know this the stress we're really feeling about institutional trust and how to manage not only you know, the the triple crisis 
um, that's in front of us. So has your idea of home evolved during this period? Uh, I mean, yes and no. No, because these crises have always existed. The inequity that exists in the health system of this country is just criminal, as simple as that. And Corona has just revealed that and made it more visible. But this inequity has always existed. And that's why most of the victims are African-Americans or Latinos or minorities. So it's a tragedy, it's a criminal uh, fact. The financial in inequity has always existed and uh, this democratic crisis started the day this country elected the, the actual occupant of the White House. And now, as you know, what, what's happening in Portland or, 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 or Seattle, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it's, it's really fascism. And, and I don't use this word uh, lightly. I, I know I recognize fascism when I see it. As you know, I was born in Chile and I lived in Chile during the Pinochet regime. And so when I see fascism, I recognize it immediately. And what's happening in this country right now is fascism. There is no other word for it. So uh, this fascism in a way is not new in a sense that this, this country has always uh, exercised fascism, but but not locally, not domestically. It has done it in Chile and it has done it in more than 50 countries around the world. And I was victim of that fascism in Chile, courtesy of Mr. Kissinger and Mr. Nixon. So fascism is not new. What's new, it is now, it is being perpetrated in this country domestically. And that I had never seen. Racism is not new. When I moved to New York in 1982, I was shocked at the level of racism. I had an image of the United States as being a, a fair country. And uh, I thought uh, Martin Luther King had made a difference. I thought the civil rights movement had made a difference. And when I arrived in New York, I was shocked to discover the level of racism. And I did a lot of works about racism in this country. I created works in the 80s and in the 90s. Works like uh, The Fire Next Time that I did for the Brooklyn Museum, that now is, it is at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. The title, of course, quotes uh, uh, James Baldwin. Then I did a series of works called Searching for African Life, about Life magazine, about the death of Martin Luther King, et cetera, et cetera. So, Racism for me has always been a criminal feature of, of life in this country, and I never accepted it. Now, after 40 years living here, you're numb by it, and you just take it as part of the normal. So when these things, these protests started again after the death of George Floyd, I thought, finally, I mean, this should have been going on for 40 years in the streets of, of this country. Why now? And, and I've been asking myself, why now? What's, what, this is interesting, why now? I've been waiting 40 years for this reaction. 
And, and what touched me the most when I went out was how diverse was the crowd. I had never seen that before. I think I felt that African-Americans have always been uh, experiencing an enormous solitude in this, in this uh, racist society. One of my works called, uh, it's about Martin Luther King's funeral represented in, in Life magazine, is about that. It's a photograph by Gordon Parks in, the, in Life magazine. It's a double page and it's an extraordinary photograph of the funeral. And 99.9% of the population attending Martin Luther King funeral is black. There are a dozen white people. That tells you the level of solitude in this fight. So when I went out and I saw so many white kids and Asians and Latinos together with African-American, I thought, this is different. This is different. Now, I'm not convinced this will bring about change, unfortunately. I have to see it to believe it. But, as I said, it's difficult to talk about something that is actually happening now, that is in the flow. We are in the, in the middle of a crisis in motion and there are elections coming up. So it's really risky to, to talk about something that is moving in front of us. Uh, but I am more hopeful than before. I think that the election of, a, of, a, of, a, of an African woman as vice president would be an extraordinary event and would correct all the defaults of the Obama administration. Because Obama, we all cry, we all believe he was going to change the world in this country and he didn't do it. I felt he was very weak. He was very weak. And, uh, and so I hope that now with a woman, with an African woman as a vice president, if it happens and it's still not sure that it will happen, that would be an extraordinarily hopeful sign. You often describe yourself as a, a utopian and an idealist, um, but uh, there's a real element of um, dealing with reality as it is in your work. And something that's come to mind uh, to me over the past few months in light of you know, the grim portrait of things as they are uh, is, your work, I can't go on, I'll go on. And um, a message that's, that doesn't feel ostentatiously hopeful, but is perhaps defiantly resilient. Um, and just uh, to wrap up, um, could you tell me a little bit more about the, the quality of your, your hope as we go forward and in this perhaps never ending crisis? As you know, that work um, is based on the last words of a, of a book by uh, Beckett called The Unnameable. So he danced like this, I can't go on, I'll go on. And so I've done a, a project with that, that statement, which I identify with very much. But the one I really identify with is the, is the original, 
which is really uh, a statement by Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci, he's the founder of the Communist Party in Italy. And in the 30s, he was in a cell in prison. He actually died in his cell, imprisoned by Mussolini, the fascist uh, dictator of Italy at the time. And he, and he wrote uh, an extraordinary book called uh, Writings from, from, from Prison, Prison Notes from Prison. And somewhere in that book, he talks about his state of mind. And at one moment, he says this brilliant uh, statement. He, he says something like, I am pessimistic with my intellect, but I am optimistic with my will. So he counterbalance the pessimism of his intellect with the optimism of his will. And I've, I always have identified with that sentiment. So intellectually, I am pessimistic, totally pessimistic. But in order to survive, in order to resist, you have to be optimistic with your will. You have to keep going. So when I, I, I discovered that Beckett's sentence I was fascinated. I felt this was almost like the, the English version of that statement by Gramsci, but without the poetry and all the specificities of Gramsci's ideas. It was much more pragmatic in the English way, as the English language is much more pragmatic than the Latin or Spanish or French or Italian. So while Gramsci said, I'm pessimistic with my intellect and optimistic with my will, Beckett says, I can't go on, I'll go on. And so I, I've used it because it still works, but it doesn't have all the nuances of the Italian version in my view. And so this is how I feel. I keep going, I'll keep working. I'm doing my third little video about the current moment. Um, these are just exercises, but intellectually, I'm, I'm still quite pessimistic. Yeah, well, with that, I'm very grateful for your resolve and uh, for speaking with us today. It's a pleasure.